Please be seated. Well, our sermon text today continues from where I preached last time I was here. When we looked at the introduction of the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Today, we will finish the chapter, verses 5 through 14. But in order to get full context, we will read the entire first chapter of the book of Hebrews. So here again, in one of the most theologically rich and gloriously Christ-honoring books of the Bible, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. I invite you to notice, before we pray and read the text, uh, that the writer develops the idea that Jesus is better than angels. So let's pray and ask God to bless a reading of our word. I ask you to stand in honor of God's word. You may stand, please. And uh, let's pray as we read. We pray for God's guidance as we read God's word. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. We sometimes take for granted the just the awesomeness of your word. May we never do that, Father. Forgive us for when we do. By your spirit, we pray, Father, that you will help us to understand this word, that you will open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears to hear great and wonderful things in your word. We pray this by Christ our Savior. Amen. So again, I'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 1, the entire chapter, verses 1 through 14. This is the Word of God, and it is absolute truth. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in heaven. So He became as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, today I have become your Father? Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them like, up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same, and your ears, years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? 
Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Please be seated. As I, cover, as I pointed out when we covered the introduction to this book a few weeks ago, a book that is a very likely a Pauline sermon circulated as a letter, the theme of this book is simple. It is this. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than the prophets and the priests of the Old Testament, including Aaron and Melchizedek. His person is better His work is better, and the covenant he came to initiate is better. Basically, Jesus is better than anyone or anything of which we can think. But before the writer or preacher, as the case may be, tells us that Jesus is better or greater than anyone else or anything we can imagine, those things I mentioned, after his introduction, he tells us that Jesus is better than angels. But really, not just better, not just greater, so much better, so much greater, so much greater that we can hardly conceive it. Now, angels are great. We, we love angels. Remember when they were a thing, angels? Now it's more like, I don't know, zombies and demons and things like that, it seems, in our culture which, of course, says a lot about our culture. But angels were the hot thing back in the day. We had TV shows like Highway to Heaven and Touched by an Angel. We had movies like Angels in the Outfield. It's a baseball reference. and some baseball fans here. Uh, we had mo- uh, we, and there were, there were these bumper stickers, on, it seemed like on every third or fourth car, uh, talking about angels. And heaven forbid, if you go into a Christian bookstore back a while ago, if there was an entire shelf full of angels, little angel trinkets, cherubs, and the like, angels were hot. And why not? Angels are great, as I said. Now, sure, Hollywood and our culture often mess things up when it comes to portraying angels, but at least there was at one time this sort of cultural affirmation of the truth that angels exist and that they are good and they serve the greater good of God's world and mankind. But you see, just like anything else that is good, uh, we often take our affinity from angels a little too far, our, our affinity for angels a little too far, even in the church. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to listen to someone preach at an army chapel in my former life as an army chaplain. I will leave out the names in order to protect the guilty. (laughs) But the sermon was by a senior chaplain in the army who, quite frankly, should have known better. And it it was around Christmas time, and the passage upon which the sermon was based was the Annunciation. You know, the announcement by the angel Gabriel to Mary that she was to give birth to the Messiah. And this was like, I think, about eight years ago, so I don't remember all the details of the sermon. But what I do remember well is that this preacher spent significant time, I mean pretty much the entire sermon, talking about angels. 
He'd say, angels are real. Angels, angels are awesome. Angels are messengers. And he said something about an angel appearing to him once and helped him change his tire or something like that. And, and I'm not joking. I vaguely remember this guy talking about how an angel got him out of a tight spot in a mechanical problem with his car. Yay, angels. But preacher, what about the announcement? What about what the angel in Luke chapter 1 told Mary? What about that, preacher? It seems pretty important, especially with Christmas coming up. No, he pretty much gave his entire sermon on how great angels are. And again, they are great, right? But that's the problem. Sometimes we get so focused on angelic beings that we forget who they are and who they serve. Angels serve us, but more importantly, they serve God and His purposes. They are messengers and servants of Almighty God. And that's the point. That's really the point of this passage. Angels are great. They are, but they are not even close to being as great as our Savior. They, angels, serve the eternal King. So in this passage today, in just 10 verses, while referencing seven or eight Hebrew Scriptures, the writer here tells us that Jesus is infinitely better than angels. Eternally better. And so that is the focus of this passage, and that's the focus of today's sermon. Jesus is greater than angels, He is Lord of hosts. He is King of angels. Now, just a note before we get into the main body of my sermon outline today, and it's about the term eternal. We will see that Jesus' sonship is eternal. His kingship is eternal, and his victory is eternal. But what we mean by that is not the same thing we mean when we say with the Apostle John, that all who believe in Jesus will inherit eternal life. Jesus is eternal, and that he is the second person of the Trinity. He's uncreated. He is God. And when the Scriptures speak of Jesus' eternality, it means more than mere immortality. It means he is the logos that defines existence. And we saw that when we looked at the introduction to the book of Hebrews uh, a few weeks ago, but we're going to see it again even more so. So first, Jesus is the eternal Son. There's definitely some overlap in these the three points of the sermon, by the way, but in rough outline, verses 5 through 7 remind us of Jesus' eternal Sonship. And what does that mean, eternal Sonship? Theologians have wrestled with this idea for years, and heretics have tried to deny or redefine what sonship means. But in the most basic and straightforward and careful reading of Scripture, it simply means this. Jesus is the Son of God. He has always been the Son of God from eternity, and He will will always be the eternal Son through all eternity going forward. He's not always been the God-man. That happened in the Incarnation 2,000 years ago. But he is always and always will be the second person, the Son. That's it. That's what we mean when we say eternal sonship. So let's move on to point two. Joking. 
Uh, not really. Let's dig in. So, so verse 5, the writer quotes Psalm 2. In uh, verse 7 of Psalm 2, he says, he asks a rhetorical question. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? And the answer to the question, I clearly implied, no one. No one. No one has ever heard those words from the Father addressed to them. No angel, no demon, no prophet, no priest, no king. No one other than the Son. Not a Son, the Son. The second person of the Godhead. This phrase from the Father, You are my Son, and today I have begotten you, has only ever been said to the Messiah, whom we now know to be Jesus. Psalm 2 is a glorious psalm. It's being quoted here again. It reminds us of the ultimate victory of the Messiah. And we're going to talk about that more in point 3 of the sermon, Jesus' eternal victory. But let's continue in this point. At the end of verse 5, the writer of Hebrews quotes the prophecy from 2 Samuel 7.14 of the coming of the Davidic kingdom, which is to be an eternal kingdom. He says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, referring, referring immediately to Solomon, but ultimately to Christ. Then moving on, verse 6, when he, quoting again, when he, that is the father, brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And there he's referencing Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. And so what we see in these couple of verses that I just reread is kind of a package deal. The writer to the Hebrews quotes three Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, of course, and he says the Messiah, the Christ, will be, one, worshipped by angels as God, two, a son of Yahweh, a son of God, and three, eternally begotten of the Father. And as if that wasn't enough to convince us that Jesus is the divine second person, he says in verse 7, quoting Psalm 104, have you noticed a pattern? Lots of Old Testament quotes here, particularly in the Psalms. Uh, he quotes Psalm 104, that, uh, that his, that is the Messiah's, angels are servants. They are messengers. They are ministers of fire, he says. So the completion of the picture of this paint by number here is that Jesus, the Messiah, is the eternally begotten Son of God. And this is it's hard to understand because in our tiny little brains, we don't really have a category for, for a begotten person not being born. Now, and Jesus was born in Bethlehem, verse 6, but Jesus being begotten does not mean that Jesus was created. The Nicene Creed puts it this way. We believe in, quoting, one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten, begotten of the Father, before all ages, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one essence with the Father, by whom all things were made. So why am I harping on this? Many of you understand this already. You know the confession. You know the Nicene Creed. You may say, I got it. Jesus being born... Uh, I got it. Jesus being begotten does not mean he was born or created. I already believe that. 
The scripture is clear. The creed is clear. Jesus is creator and sustainer. Jesus is worshiped. So you may be saying, why is it so important to understand that begotten does not mean and cannot mean born? Well, I'm thinking primarily of those folks that will come to your door. You know them. A lot of true Christians, but also a lot of non-Christian groups stumble over this because they don't see that whole picture that we just talked about, that packaged deal, if you will. You know, it's been rightly said that if you try to completely understand the Trinity and the deity of Christ, you will lose your mind. But if you deny it, you will lose your soul. I've been talking to the middle schoolers about these groups, these groups that come to your door. And today we talked about the Jehovah's Witnesses. And here's a tip, by the way. They do not truly represent Jehovah, and they do not represent the true God, and they do not come with a truthful witness. And what do the Jehovah's Witnesses teach about Jesus? They teach that he is an angel. Not just any angel, but the archangel Michael but an angel nonetheless. But you see, that creates a problem for the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses because Jesus is worshipped according to the verses we just read. Jesus is the Son of the Father, not a Son of the Father. He is eternally begotten. He is the Son of God, begotten, not made. Eternally begotten of the Father. We don't worship an angel. Jesus is far superior to angels. And as we saw in our reading in the book of Revelation today, angels are not to be worshipped. But Jesus is because he is the eternally begotten Son of God. When we were first assigned to Fort Bragg back in 2016, by the way, in my prayer, I wrongly said Fort Bragg, but it will always be, I guess, the the fort formerly known as Bragg. But uh, when, when we first got to Bragg in 2016, I was assigned as a chaplain to the Pope Chapel. And at that chapel, we had this really cool statue of the Archangel Michael. And some of you may have seen it before, and it was, it was awesome. He had wings, and he had a sword, and he's apparently killing Lucifer or something like that. I looked it up because I wasn't really sure um, and, and again, some of you have seen this statue. It was really cool. But really the sad part of that statue is that the Catholic community there at Pope Chapel, they will pray, maybe not to the statue, but to Michael. They pray to this guy. And they pray to other angels. And that is forbidden in scriptures, as we've already seen. We should never dare to elevate Michael or any other angel or heavenly being above Christ. That is blasphemy. And the writer of Hebrews reminds us of this. Only Christ is to be worshipped. Only He is the eternal Son. Only He is to be prayed to along with the Father and the, Son and the Spirit. Let us not fall into the trap of putting angels above our Savior. May it never be. Only Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. But not only is he the eternally begotten Son, he is also the eternal King. This is found, if you're making notes in your outline, in verses 8 through 12. 
And we covered this last time that Jesus is king, but it's, it's worth repeating. <clears throat> Why is Jesus better than angels? It's not just because he's eternally begotten, but it's because he is seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven on an eternal throne. Verses 8 and 9 clearly present Jesus' current monarchical reign as king of kings. In verse 8, the writer is quoting Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. And in verse 9, he is referencing Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 3. Here are those two verses again as a reminder. Verse 8, But about the, Lord, the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Verse 9, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. So the Father says even more glorious things about the Son in these two verses. He's just piling on the glory, glory upon glory attributed to the Son. Is it any wonder that He's greater than angels? And notice, he's not just, it's not just the throne that He describes here. He, he, just, he describes the scepter. We've all seen the thrones and the crowns and the scepters in movies uh, or TV shows that portray earthly kings. At the recent coronation of King Charles, there were all these elements. The crown and the robe and the scepter and the orb thingy. That thing just reminds me of the holy hand grenade from Monty Python, but, but I digress. And all these elements represent the authority invested in the king. And here in this passage, Jesus is, is, is standing with his scepter of justice, administering justice in his kingdom with his glorious royal scepter. And then it says, he, meaning Jesus, loves righteousness and hates wickedness. And it also says he has joy. Not just joy, I mean, not just happiness, but joy, true joy. I think there's a really important point of application here for us. You know, our culture talks about justice, social justice, and our leaders and politicians want to impose righteousness and their form of goodness on us. But we as Christians are truly the only ones with a basis for justice and righteousness. We are the only ones with a basis for judging what is good or wicked. Because we are servants of the one who is perfectly just and perfectly righteous and reveals wickedness by his law. We have Jesus and we have his word to remind us of these things. We are to live righteously according to his word. We are to hate what is evil and to cling to what is good. And of course, that starts with hating the evil in our own hearts and seeking to live out that righteousness of Christ in our lives and in our relationships. And then there's joy. Our Lord went to the cross for us, the Bible says, for the joy set before Him. And now as the eternal King, He exudes eternal joy. He radiates it. And we, the redeemed of Christ, are recipients of that joy. We are all people, we of all people should exude joy. Yes, we face pain and discouragement and difficulty like everyone else, but we have been redeemed by the one who not only radiates joy, but is the very source of joy. 
And the angels are joyous. But Jesus didn't die for the angels. So how much more uh, of those of us whom he has died, how much more should we experience joy? David prayed in deep repentance, Restore unto me, O Lord, the joy of your salvation. The Apostle James, Jesus' half-brother, said, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you experience hardship. We have the marvelous benefit as Christians to understand and experience true, lasting joy. Eternal joy. So how dare we not embrace that joy in Christ as his followers, his redeemed. We're already kind of short on time, but in verses 10 through 12, we see a reference back to Jesus' role as creator and sustainer of all things. The writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27, reminding us that Jesus is far superior to angels because he created those very angels. And this is the reason we can say with confidence that Jesus is our eternal king. He laid out the foundation of the earth and his years will have no end. He is eternal. He is the creator. He is our eternal king. But let's look at that last point now, that Jesus will have eternal victory. First, working backwards, verse 14 reminds us, yet again, that angels are mere creatures. They are ministering spirits who are sent to serve God and us, God's people. But verse 13 is where I want to camp out for just a minute. In that verse, we see God the Father speaking as quoted from Psalm 110 and asking another rhetorical question to which the answer is no one. So that means that this entire section of Hebrews begins and ends with a rhetorical question to which the answer is no one. Quoting verse 13. And to which of the angels has he, the Father, ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This reference to Psalm 110 is speaking of the Messiah's eternal victory over his enemies. And that victory is certain because God has decreed it. But that victory is also certain because Jesus, we know, has conquered and will finally and fully conquer the devil, sin, and death. The devil and his minions, all that follow in his deception, will be thrown into the lake of fire on the final day. And on that day, sin and death will be no more. So here, the Father assures the Son, the Messiah, and assures us that his enemies will be destroyed. And although that final judgment will be horrifying to those who are perishing, it should provide great hope to us. Because God's enemies are also our enemies. And on that day, the struggle will be over. Also, verse 13, quoting Psalm 110, harkens back to verse 5, which we read earlier, where the writer quotes, as I pointed out earlier, Psalm 2. So remember, verse 5, quoting Psalm 2, declares Jesus' eternal sonship. But Psalm 2, if you read the entire psalm, is not just about Jesus' eternal sonship. It also provides for us a picture of the way God views the wicked. I urge you today, this afternoon perhaps, to go back and read Psalm 2. Psalm 2, along with Psalm 1, set up the entire, sets up the entire book of the Psalms. And not only is Psalm 2 kind of 
humorous, really. It also teaches us much as it pertains to God's sovereignty and what will happen on Judgment Day. In Psalm 2, Yahweh and his Messiah's reaction to, to the plotting of heathen nations is this. He laughs. He scoffs at them. He mocks them. And he reminds them that he is the sovereign of the universe and that he will ultimately have his way. Even while the nations rage at him, he will have his way, our God. Now let's look at the first six verses of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrifying, terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king, that is Jesus, on Zion, my holy hill. And then God the Father goes on to say in verse 12, Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. This is what the Apostle John calls the wrath of the Lamb. Verse 5, verse, uh, verse five and verse 13, in those verses, Jesus the Lamb will execute wrath and judgment on his foes unless they kiss him. This is a call to bow the knee to Jesus. This is a call to submit to God's Messiah. This is a call to acknowledge Jesus' eternal victory. He will, be, he, he will be God the Father's instrument of wrath towards the enemies of God, Jesus will. And it is the third of the three reasons we've talked about as to why Jesus is far superior to angels. So we're out of time, but as we said at the outset, angels are great. They're, they're amazing creatures, glorious in many ways. They even execute judgment in some cases. But they, the angels, will not execute judgment to the scale that Jesus will execute judgment. He, the eternal Son, the eternal King, the all-powerful Christ, will declare victory, eternal victory, and His justice will prevail. There's much more we could say about Jesus' superiority, his betterness, if you will. Not just that he's superior to angels, but his superiority to all but the Father and the Spirit. Only the other persons of the Holy Trinity have equal power and authority to Jesus. Jesus is the eternal Son, the eternal King, and the eternal Victor to whom we must give full obedience and honor. His glory is unmatched by angels or any other creature, and it's not even close. Let me land the plane by talking about something God gave me this week that might be helpful to all of us. On Friday, as I was still sort of working through the sermon and this outline, an old third-day song came to mind after having read the 24th Psalm. And this third-day song is kind of a commentary on the 24th Psalm, Answering the question, who is the king of glory? Which is found in verse 8 and 10 of the great Davidic psalm, Psalm 24. 
Now, Third, Third Day is a Christian music group, for those of you who don't know, that came to prominence in the 90s. And as far as I still know, as I know, they're still producing quality Christian music. But this song is particularly wonderful in my mind. And considering that I was working on a sermon entitled Jesus, King of Angels, the song was especially helpful to me in terms of focusing my thoughts on Jesus. The song is called King of Glory, and it poses the question in the opening verse, who is the king of angels? And the answer, of course, is Jesus. He is the king of angels. He is the king of glory. He, the song goes on, and this is where it gets kind of personal, is the king of my heart. That's what the line says. He is the king of angels, the king of glory. He's the king of my heart. He's the king of my heart. And he's the king of your heart if you're trusting him. And if you're not trusting him, I pray that you will trust him today. But Jesus is the king of the hearts of those who are trusting him. He has conquered our hearts. And it's it's profoundly important to consider because, of course, we don't always see the eternal son working out his eternal monarchy towards his eternal victory in our lifetimes. We only see these things by faith until he comes again. And so it's difficult, right? We see or we see mostly with eyes of faith, but we don't see it physically. We don't see it physically now. There is struggle and pain and sin all around us in our individual lives. And if we're not reminded of Jesus' greatness, it's easy to get discouraged. So I want to remind you this morning that not only is Jesus the eternal Son, not only is He the eternal King, the King of angels, the King of glory, not only will Jesus be the eternal victor over death, hell, and the devil, but He, through the gift of grace and faith and adoption, has conquered our hearts. And that, as much as anything you know about Jesus, will get you through whatever it is you're dealing with, whatever it is this church is dealing with. Jesus, the King of angels, is also the eternal King of His people. So take refuge in that today, brothers and sisters. Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of the Father, Jesus is the eternal king. He is and will be the eternal victory of the glory, uh, for the glory of God and of God's people. And Jesus is the king of our hearts. Trust him today. And as Psalm 2 reminds us, we who take refuge in him will be blessed. Kiss the Son. Take refuge in Yahweh and his Messiah. And receive the blessing that comes with knowing that he has conquered your sin. He has conquered your heart. Jesus is the king of angels. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, you are the king of angels. And your heavenly father, the the eternal relationship between your father and you, Jesus, He reminds us over and over again through the Psalms, through the writer to the Hebrews that you are the eternally begotten Son. You are the eternal King. You are the eternal Victor. And that your Father is pleased 
with what you have accomplished for your people. You have conquered our hearts. Conquer our hearts again today. We pray this in the name of Jesus, to Jesus, by the Spirit. Amen.